Well, good morning, First Family. Isn't it good to be together today? Thanks for making it through the cold this morning. You know, it was really cold when we got here this morning, but take heart, it'll be 85 degrees on Wednesday. Isn't that crazy? Praise God that our future doesn't depend on weather. And let's thank God that He is our future. When we talk about Romans 14, we take it in the same vein that we have taken the last two chapters. We started, you'll remember, way back in the early part of January with Live Transform. We said, hey, if we're going to be who Christ has called us to be, wait a minute, not do Christian stuff, but be like Christ, those are two different things. Don't settle for doing Christian stuff when God has called you to be like Christ. If we're going to be who Christ has called us to be, the transformation has to start on the inside. It has to begin here and then flow out to there. If I try to do it the other way around, it won't last. But I can invite the living, breathing Christ into my life to change things. And that's what leads me from transformation to humility. That was the second thing we talked about. And then it's not enough to just hoard it for myself. I need to take it to the world in which I live, so living culturally. And then coming behind that is where we end up today. Living with unity. Live with unity. It is harder than it sounds. Anybody say amen to that? Yeah. It's been said, and rightly so, that if you have two people together, you have at least three opinions. You've understood that before, haven't you? Maybe you have experienced that yourself. I want to encourage you to recognize today that the transformation that Christ came to bring you can bring some healing into those areas too. Well, how, Darren, how? That's why the Apostle Paul takes this topic up. He wants us to understand that unity, like Christ prayed for us in John 17, the high priestly prayer is available to us if we're willing to pursue it. Let's pray together and we'll get started. And now, Lord Jesus, we have opened your word having worshipped and been blessed by the music we have had, I pray, Lord, that you would invade this place with your power. Help us, Lord Jesus, to know your heart, to hear your word, and for it to strike not just on our eardrums, but on our hearts. Change us, Lord, right here and right now. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So life, transform, life transformation in a singular sense, is much easier than if you live in a community. When you put more than two people together, disagreements arise, fractures, divisions, arguments, wounds. How then do we tackle it? Well, Paul starts in verse 1 of chapter 14, and he starts here. Receive one another because God has received us. It means welcome let me read the first three verses for you. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I want you to do something for me, would you? I want you to underline the word welcome in verse 1, and then underline the word welcome 
in verse 3. This balance, it reflects exactly what God is calling us to be. If we're going to be unified, it starts by recognizing God has welcomed us so we can afford to welcome others. A little bit of backstory about the conversation he's having about meat and vegetables here. So in the first century, the farmer's market kind of approach, what we would call a farmer's market, was commonplace. It is in most of the rest of the world. When you travel, you see common markets uh, set all over the place. And in these markets, you don't always know where the food is coming from. There arose a dispute among many well-meaning and well-intentioned Christians about the meat that was sold in the markets. Given they didn't have refrigeration, they had to buy it every day. And so the question became, is this meat, meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, a false god? And if it has been offered to that false god, you shouldn't eat it. Now, as I said, this was well-intentioned and well-meaning. It was meant to protect the Christian from being involved in idolatry and taking that idolatry within. But on the same hand, on the same token, could it be that that meat is still blessed by God, even if it was sacrificed? Maybe the better thing to do is don't ask a whole lot of questions, especially if you want a hamburger. Anybody with me there? So in this dispute, there arose some self-righteous people both of which called themselves strong. In reality, both of them are weak. Weak because they're willing to exchange things that are not eternal for those things that are, and exchanging the things that are eternal for the things that are not. Let's start with this axiom. There will always be the weak. Welcome them with love and without arguments. As now... There will always be legalistic issues. Now, it's easy for us to say, well, we would have been wiser than that. Would we? You know, this September will be 25 years that I pastored. Hard to believe I've spent that long doing this. But in that 25 years, here's what I've seen, not just at my churches, but at other places. If you have a dispute, it's going to be at church sometimes, hmm? I know churches that divided over what color carpet to put down. I know churches that divided over what color to paint the walls. I know churches that argued so vehemently they divided over whether the piano belongs on this side or that side. You might say, well, that's pretty shallow, Darren. Maybe you need to expand your horizons. That's why I came here, right? We don't have some of those challenges, and thank God we don't. But these legalistic issues, why do, they, why do they come up? Well, I don't know for everyone, but I'll suggest a couple of reasons. One, they're easy to identify. We can devolve into our tribes then. We're pack people. And so we, we find our tribe and we want to gather with them. And to have a tribe, you have to have some who are in and what? Some who are out. That's easy to mark. We can pride ourselves on being so self-righteous and being so correct and reading the Bible so well. And I want to tell you, friends, go back to Romans 12 and see it again. We are called to humility, not arrogance. We're called to humility. It means that we recognize that Christ, who welcomed us, 
calls us to welcome one another. Let's just talk about this a little further. Speaking of this piano, what if we determined that the only way we could do spiritual things in our church is based on who can lift this piano? Now, there would be some of you that would be able to. I don't mean move it. I mean pick it up and tote it. You say, well, Darren, that's impossible. You might have a handful of people in the church that can even pick it up off the floor, much less carry it somewhere. But this is my point. If we're going to set standards, let's make sure we're using reasonable ones. And that's Paul's point. He wants us to make sure that we're not declaring somebody weak just because they don't meet some mythical standard. Let's make sure we see ourselves properly too. Just because we can't do it or maybe because we can doesn't make us strong. Let's recognize that Christ is the one who is strong. There will always be the weak. Welcome them anyway and without arguments but with love. Here's why it comes up. Disputes over non-eternal issues must not separate the body of Christ. What you see in verse 2 is a non-eternal issue. Whether you eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol or not, whether you eat only vegetables and meat is not eternal. What is eternal? Christ himself. His lordship. There's a popular view nowadays that says you don't have to have Jesus in your life to go to heaven. We're all God's children. He's going to take us all home. Let me tell you, friends, that's a lie. It is a reflection against what clear teaching of Scripture says. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To accept that teaching means I must reject the lie that says everybody goes. All right, so that's an eternal issue. What's a non-eternal issue? What should you wear to church on Sunday morning? Now, here I go. Some of you have already got your hackles up. I watched a little bit of the video from last Sunday, and I was surprised at, to see myself wearing my Rangers jersey. Not that I don't love the Rangers. Let's make that clear. But... I was surprised, and I thought, what would my grandfather think if he happened to tune into one of our broadcasts? He would be horrified. In his culture, in his day, you dress to the nines to go to church. Now, there's nothing wrong with dressing that way, but does it make someone more spiritual if they do dress that way, or less if they don't? No. No, the real problem is on the inside. Let's get that part right. That's a non-eternal issue. Let's not make it an eternal one. Here's another eternal issue. Jesus Christ is returning someday, and when he does, he shall judge all of eternity, and some will go to hell. That's an eternal issue. We can be confident of it because it's the clear teaching of Scripture. What's a non-eternal issue? What songs we sing on Sunday morning? I had a dear sweet saying of God, in my church in East Texas, he would keep a scorecard for me on Sunday mornings. He'd keep a scorecard on the church bulletin about how many songs we sang that were traditional from the hymn book, how many songs were not traditional. And he would count how many verses we sang of each one. And then at the end of the service, he would bring it to me and say, here's how you did today, Darren. While I appreciated his passion, I might say, and I did, it's misplaced. 
It's not eternal. The songs have eternal elements in it, but the songs we sing and the way we sing them is not eternal. Let's not get trapped into thinking it is. Traps. We see them all around us. We set mouse traps when we want to catch rodents. We set gopher traps when we want to catch those that are burrowing under the ground. And when I think of the word trap, I think of just one thing. The movie Home Alone. If you're like me, it's not Christmas till you've seen it at least three times, right? Home Alone. If you're not familiar with it, it's the story of Kevin McAllister and his family. Kevin is a seven, eight-year-old boy who is left at home accidentally by his parents. His family has gone off on a trip to Paris. He gets left behind. And in the midst of his being left behind, his parents can't get back fast enough, so he finds himself the victim of two bumbling idiot crooks who want to rob his home, they discover he's home alone. And they decide that's okay, they're going to rob it anyway. Kevin, to protect his home, sets traps for them. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, go home and Google it. You'll be glad you did. But it is a wonderful picture of the kind of traps I'm talking about. Traps. He springs them on them all throughout the movie. And it is one that the, the, the final scene when he springs all of them at once, oh gracious, by the time you're done, you sort of feel sorry for them. Now yes, they are the bad guys. You're not supposed to cheer for them, and indeed they get their comeuppance at the end. But I want to help you recognize something. Those traps, they only worked because they were so stupid to fall into them. Let's make sure that we don't make that same mistake. And let's be clear, Satan... Satan will disguise himself. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us he will disguise himself as an angel of light, masquerading as if he is one of God's chosen to deceive people into this trap. After all, if it wasn't attractive, nobody would buy it. Don't get caught in it. Make sure you differentiate between the eternal and the non-eternal. Plug this into your life, would you? Two things. One, offer grace to those who disagree with you. This is exactly opposite from how our culture does it. Our society says offer judgment to those who disagree with you because they couldn't be more wrong. Well, for those of us who are always right, those of you who are not are really annoying. Can I just admit that to you? It's a joke. Don't take that too personally, all right? I want you to recognize we can offer grace because Christ has transformed us. If he's transformed you, then offer grace to those who disagree with you because you have plenty to spare. Here's another thing. Anchor your mind and your heart to what is eternal and don't get trapped by the non-eternal. Let's move on quickly. In verse 4, the Apostle Paul calls us to a recognition Strengthen one another as God has strengthened us. Verse 4 says this, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What does it mean? It means this, judgment for others is not ours to give. When we strengthen one another as God has strengthened us, then we recognize He's going to judge all of us at the end anyway. We don't have to jump ahead and help him. We can 
therefore, trust that God, who is a wise judge, has all wisdom and authority, and he'll take care of it. I can that, therefore surrender the opportunity that maybe I'm tempted to take to judge others. In this case, the apostle is using very legalese kind of language. He's speaking as if he's in a courtroom. A manner of judgment would have been consistent with a court case between an aggrieved party and their assailant. In this case, we are the assailant. God himself is the aggrieved party. So when we sin or we judge somebody else, we're not judging them, we're judging God himself. Oh, friends, it is he who is wronged by our sin, and it is we, we who must surrender the opportunity to judge others. They don't serve us. They are not our servant. To judge them is to take a role that was never meant to be ours in the first place. He ends verse 4 with something that we need to hear. It is this, we are doubly blessed as we're strengthened to stand by our judge. Our judge. We each will stand before the judge. And we will be condemned because of the sin in our lives, the brokenness, the wickedness. We have no answer for it whatsoever except... The son of the judge comes down and stands beside us and says, I've paid the penalty for them. They are mine. I want to encourage you to recognize, friends, you don't get to judge. You don't get to judge because Jesus has taken the judgment you deserved. I want to give you a couple of things to plug into your life here. One, if you can choose only one, would you rather be right or holy? I want you to consider that with me because for many of us in our world today, we'd rather be right and have ourselves proven that way. Well, friends, I won't say that I always get it correct, but I'll say that my prayer is that I would choose to be holy. How do I know the difference? Lean into God's word and God's people to find strength for your journey. See it there at the end of verse four again. He will be strengthened and he will stand. That's the powerful hand of God coming around us and holding us up even though we have no strength of our own. From verses 5 to 9, the Apostle Paul repeats a refrain and it is one that is worthy of hearing again. It is a statement about how we are to live when we have disagreements. Center yourself around one thing. It is this, Jesus Christ is Lord. Hear it in verses 5 to 9. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be Lord, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. 
The refrain that he uses here is the Lordship of Christ. And it is a refrain worth repeating. It is a recognition that the Lordship of Christ in my life is a decision I've got to make every day because I'm going to be assaulted by my own influences and the influence of the world around me and the influences of those that are, that are consistent in my life. They're going to be pushing against me. I have to have something that is the center pole that I can lean into and know this much for sure. For the Apostle Paul, this is what it is. Jesus Christ is Lord. And therefore, I am to give Jesus his rightful place. He is to be at the center of our thoughts, our words, our actions, our lives. There's no substitute for him. He is before all things, in all things presently, and carries all things to the end. His eternality secures my temporality to something stable, <coughs> something that I can hold on to. I'm going to give you a couple of things to take home, plug into your life. Making Christ Lord of our lives is a daily decision, not a once for all. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just say, Christ is Lord of my life and check that box and leave it checked forever? Oh, that it were that easy. No, the lordship aspect of Christ in my life means that I must make him Lord on Sunday and then again Monday and Tuesday and then again Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and then Saturday and then get back here and start the whole thing over again. Our lives are leaky. They'll slide out one way or the other if we don't continue to plug it by saying, Jesus, be the Lord of my life today. Be the boss of my life. Lead every decision. Lead every choice. Lead every word. And that brings me to the other thing I want to have you plug in. We must seek Christ's lordship over all aspects of our lives. Notice I used an active word there, seek it. For without seeking it, it shall not be found. But if we are the Lord's, as verse 8 says, whether we live or we die, then we will seek it, anchor ourselves to it and say, this, this much I know. I might not know everything, but I know this. Christ's lordship shall be over all aspects of my life. Let us conclude with this. The same place the apostle does in verses 10 to 12. It is with the confident assertion that Jesus Christ is judge. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. This recognition rhymes, if you will, with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the judgment seat of Christ and the certainty of it. It rhymes with what we find in Revelation 19 and 20, where Christ sits on the, 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 the seat of judgment, the Bema seat, as it's called, and he puts judgment down, right judgment. His judgment is right, his judgment is true, his judgment is faithful, mine not so much. But if Jesus Christ is judge, and he is, 
then maybe I better reserve judgment for Jesus to render. I better push it back across the table to him. Now that's hard. I'll be the first to admit that. That's difficult and often painful because quite frankly, there are people who do us wrong. There are people who will abuse you and they will take advantage of you at the least opportune time. They will sneak in and stab you in the back and they'll betray you. What are you to do with them? Strike back when you get the opportunity? Well, that is an option. And maybe it's the right one in some context, but maybe the better one is this. Reserve judgment for Jesus to render. He'll do it a lot better than you will. But Darren, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how bad it hurt. You don't know how wounded I was by their choices. Yeah, I understand. As best I, I can, anyway. We've walked through some of that ourselves. But maybe the situation isn't situational. Maybe it's a chance for me to grow in my faith and to be transformed even still yet further. For Christ to change me by letting him render judgment in his good time. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And if verse 12 doesn't catch your breath, read it again, because it should. So each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That little story we told a moment ago about standing before the judgment seat of Christ, it's not a story, it's a reality. And each of us will find that way. Furthermore, we'll find it in those we disagree with too. So now if we're going to live with unity... This is the elements that are necessary to get us there. Christ's lordship, Christ's place as judge, receiving one another as God has received us, and loving one another as we are strengthened by him. This is an amazing thing, a quote that I found this week as I was preparing to come to you from Dr. Warren Wearsby. Dr. Wearsby is a longtime pastor and Bible scholar. He's home with the Lord now. But here's what he said, and it, I thought it good enough to share with you now. I've learned God can bless people with whom I disagree. Well, God, how dare you? Don't you know how wrong they are? You can't bless them. Could it be that I'm the one that needs to change? And that brings us to our invitation. I want us to do our invitation just a little bit different today. And the reason for it is, hey, our next time together will be during the Drill Deeper event that we planned for for weeks, months. We can hold all the revival meetings we want, but the transformation has to start here for it to actually revive us. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're going to give you a time of silence to talk to the Lord. You might say something like, Lord, forgive me for being judgmental 
self-righteous, hypocritical even. You might say something like, Lord, cleanse me of sin. And then take it a step further by naming that sin in agreement that God said it was wrong in the first place. You might say, God, heal the relationship that I have with fill in the blank. Maybe you need to step out of this invitation time and pick up a phone and call them. Maybe they're in this room and you need to seek them out before you go home. This day is the one God has given you to make that right. My prayer is that you will use this time, brief as it may be, to start inviting revival into your life. Lord Jesus, in the quiet of this moment, we embrace who you are, the transforming authority you have in our lives, and the opportunity you've given us to be transformed by your grace. Remind us, Lord, it's not about who we are. It's about who you are. So we invite revival into this room, Lord Jesus. Change our hearts. Change our lives. We know your word says revival will begin with the house of God. So here we are, Lord, and we're asking for it. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would bring healing where brokenness exists. I pray for those who are right now struggling with offering grace to those they disagree with. And Satan is going to pour gas on that fire, Lord. I know he does for me. Encouraging that wound to be nursed, not let it heal. I pray for healing anyway. I pray for freedom in this room, Lord, for your spirit to do business in each of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.